1: Guaranteed.
2: Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where I try to tell you a little bit about football and maybe a little bit about life. But this week, it's all football all the time. I've got two very interesting guests. Tyler Dunn of Bleacher Report, who wrote an explosive story about the divorce between Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy with some tentacles of the old Ted Thompson regime. And and I'll have uh, Tyler Dunn on to discuss that story and also the future of Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. Also, Mike Lombardi. Now, Mike has been a longtime acquaintance of mine I've known him going back to the days when he worked for the San Francisco 49ers in the 80s, a longtime NFL employee, 35-year NFL career. Now he's got a podcast at Cadence 13 that we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about a lot entering the NFL Draft, which, as you listen to this, is just two weeks away. But first... Quick thoughts on three matters around the National Football League. Number one, Kyler Murray getting ready to visit the Arizona Cardinals. And I don't know if this is the worst kept secret. I don't think it's a secret anymore how much the Arizona Cardinals like Kyler Murray. I think most people in the free world want uh, believe that Kyler Murray is going to be taken in the first round with the first pick in the NFL draft on Thursday evening, April 25th. And I think what's really interesting about the way this is this is happening is that Josh Rosen, the incumbent quarterback, is basically being hidden during early drills for the Arizona Cardinals. And look, the Cardinals are in a very tough spot. Josh Rosen is in a very tough spot. He's an adult, he understands that what might happen uh, and to me, it's hard to kill the Cardinals for not wanting Josh Rosen to come out and to sort of play the star in the melodrama, um, you know, between the Arizona Cardinals uh, and uh, not only with Josh Rosen, but also obviously with Kyler Murray. I think the Cardinals have probably decided what they want to do. I wrote this week that there's a good chance that the two teams that are most interested in will be most interested in Josh Rosen uh, are Washington and the New York Giants. And uh, so we'll see what happens. But the Cardinals have to be very, very careful in this. Number one, the NFL wants to keep a lid on all this until draft night. You've got ABC, you've got ESPN, you've got uh, NFL Network all going live with different telecasts. And the last thing they want is to have zero drama going into that evening. So I think it's going to be very, very interesting to watch this over the next couple of weeks. But the next chapter is going to be with the visit of uh, Kyler Murray to the Arizona Cardinals, where I think we all believe that he'll end up being united with a guy who recruited him out of high school, Cliff Kingsbury, when he was a college coach in the state of Texas. Number two. Antonio Brown, you know, I think there are some people who probably should just take a long time out from social media. Antonio Brown said this week, okay, you know, I'm out of here basically because all I get is grief on social media. And, you know, I think everybody would view the latest Tempest. when Antonio Brown criticized his former teammate Juju Smith-Schuster for costing the Steelers a playoff spot by fumbling at New Orleans in a a brutal loss in December. I mean, the bottom line is, why in the world would you bring that up three months after the season? It's one of the silliest things that I've ever seen. (laughs) You know, to bring that up three months after the end of the regular season – Uh, For no good reason whatsoever, except apparently for vengeance. Um, So Antonio Brown now going off social media. And I think a lot of people will look at Antonio Brown and wave and say, dude, this is for your own good. You need to get away for a while and maybe forever. And look, I think Antonio Brown is going to be a good impact player in Oakland for the Raiders, but he's not doing himself or his image any favors with ripping a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster, who was only good to him uh, in the time that uh, they were together in Pittsburgh. Number three, the NFL and the NFLPA issued a statement late Tuesday of this week, which basically said, essentially, that uh, we have been negotiating, we had a, a good negotiating session today. Meaning on Tuesday, as you uh, listen to this, um, you know, early in this week, it'll be Tuesday, April 9th. They had a negotiating session and they expect to have more negotiating sessions. I think the interesting thing about what I'm hearing about both sides, I don't think it's going to stay all nice uh, and friendly and pleasant at all. But I do think that it's a good sign that they're sitting down now with a full two years left in the collective bargaining agreement to really try to lay the groundwork, you know, for some uh, quality discussions now. I believe there are going to be two elements that are going to be really important sticking points that we'll see whether there's any movement at all. I think that the Players Association would love to get rid of the franchise tag uh, because it really limits the ability, especially of big, big big-time players, to get what they're really worth on the open market. And then I think it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how much the NFL pushes. And this is not a huge thing in negotiations, but I do think it'll be an interesting little sticking point. I've been told all along that the NFL is very interested in placing a franchise in London sometime after the expiration of the collective bargaining agreement and the signing of a new one, which uh, clearly would be sometime in 2021. So if the NFL wants uh, to put a franchise over in Europe, um, they're going to have to get the sign-off. From the NFLPA, and what will the work rules be like? Will players who agree to play for a franchise in London get paid automatically fifteen percent more uh, will the salary cap be a little bit higher twenty or thirty million dollars higher so that players can earn more money uh, because honestly, you know everybody will say, well geez why why would that be a factor?" Because it is going to be a hardship for some guys uh, to live 5,000 miles away from home. And guys are not going to want to do it. But if a franchise moves and you go over there, I think you're going to have to give a carrot to some players. I know that this is not on the front burner of anybody's agenda. But I do believe it's going to be a very interesting negotiating point for the players and for the owners uh, in the next couple of years, as the collective bargaining agreement is negotiated. But I will say this, a very good sign. The only thing I'm hearing is you don't hear anybody, you know, uh, you know, pouting or or uh, being really disagreeable early on in these negotiations. You don't hear anything at all. But I can tell you that if there were some angry people in here, you would see and hear some leaks right now. You don't hear that. And, hey, for people who love football, I think everybody uh, is rooting for uh, a CBA that gets done on time so that no games and no training camp is missed in 2021. And now my conversation with Tyler Dunn of Bleacher Report. Happy to be joined on the Peter King podcast by Tyler Dunn writer for Bleacher Report, who basically has written a bombshell story, which, if you're listening to this podcast, you have read this. Perhaps you've read it seven times, if you're a Green Bay Packers fan, because you just want to make sure that that you have uh, basically gotten all of it, uh, because there was so much in it about uh, what went wrong between Mike McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers and Ted Thompson, and uh, really why what should have been a great Green Bay Packers franchise uh, basically went astray. And, and you know, Tyler, I, I also am really fascinated uh, when you write a story like this, I want you to explain, if you can, a little bit about it's kind of what it takes to write a story like this. Because clearly... You you formerly covered the Packers in Wisconsin, and you you had to have some institutional knowledge and institutional contacts. So take a minute if you can, and and tell people what exactly goes into writing a story like this.
0: You got it, Peter. And, and man, thank you so much for uh, having me on to to get into all this. Uh, you know. I- I covered the team for four years at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and a couple of off seasons before that as, a, as an intern for a couple of different outlets when I was in college uh, out there. So, you know, bits and pieces kind of was there throughout this uh, arranged marriage that was doomed, I guess, all along. Um, and what goes into it, I guess, is how did it get from point A to point B? I just remember, you know, being out there for the fifteen in one season, being out there for contending year after year when it was like Ryan Grant said, everything was automatic. They're, they're in meetings, almost chuckling when preparing for an opponent because they know exactly which players are going to work and they're going to dominate offensively. How did it get from there to what we saw that day against the Cardinals when they inexplicably lose to just a, a terrible Arizona team at home? And, you know, I, was, I wasn't at the game or anything. I was just kind of following from afar and I'm like, man, it, it got bad fast. What happens? Um, and that's kind of the genesis for it. It's curiosity. You, like you know, you just kind of want to follow your intuition and your curiosity. And I just picked up my phone and started going through my contacts and seeing, you know, which, which players, scouts, personnel guys, coaches were in there, um, just made a list of a bunch of numbers, started texting, started calling. Uh, there was one conversation um,
2: specifically with a... Uh, How long ago? So when did, you, when did you start doing this?
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, feel free to cut me off. I don't want to ramble too much here. Um it was around yeah, right around that game, really. So uh, you know, mid December. Yeah. And it was a you know, a personnel guy who was there for a while and, and isn't there anymore, um, reached out to him and we talked for probably an hour and a half at least. You know, you know, and it just shocked me. I mean, the things he was he was saying about about Mike McCarthy, about Aaron Rodgers, um, some really scathing stuff. Uh, and I, I didn't really know that Mike McCarthy's offense went as stale as it did. I mean, I'm not really an extra and O's guy. You know, you see stuff on Twitter, but this guy really laid out exactly how things devolved and, and how cornerbacks in the division are literally calling out plays before the snap. And, you know, here's why the slant route died and here's why this died. And, and that they went through all of that. So... You know it kind of started there, and then you just start talking to you know, as many players as possible, as many coaches as possible, and I probably got forty five to fifty guys in all, and um, you know transcribed it all word for word, printed it out, read it, reread it, rere re re-read, reread it, and try to get a sense for where people were coming from. and then at at the last part of it is writing, you know and and getting into it that way, but uh, big picture, I thought it would be big to get as many voices as possible to really get that, the big picture. look. I didn't really want it to be a, a uh, Aaron Rodgers centric story or a Mike McCarthy, McCarthy centric story. And I, I reached out to both kind of later in the game. I, I didn't want it to be kind of swayed. I, either way wanted it to be more so the bulk of as many people as I could talk to that were around, um, you know, for, and it, it originally was going to be a Packers story that became a Rogers McCarthy dominant story.
2: Um, and during the course of this, it sounds like you worked on it for about four months. Um, was there a Eureka moment in those four months, a Eureka interview where you just said, holy cow, this is, this is going to be pretty big? Hmm.
0: I'd say uh, probably, you know, that first one definitely opened my eyes on some things. And then getting guys... On the record was big. Probably Greg Jennings that conversation and you know, we we talked on the phone and he was I mean he wanted to talk about this. You know, it was like at an airport, I think. He's literally like going through going gate to gate and and getting on the plane and the only reason he hung up was because his plane was taken off, from what I remember.
2: (laughs) You know what was amazing about what was amazing about Greg Jennings? And you know how I, I always I always think of stories in this way. And you know when I think of this story, your story on the Packers um, I, I don't the first thing I think of in retrospect after reading it I don't think of Mike McCarthy getting a massage or anything like that i I think of the more the football parts of this story the amazing thing. And probably this might not even be people's top five of things that they learned from it or things they'll remember. I will remember Greg Jennings basically telling the story of Aaron Rodgers saying to a member of the San Francisco 49ers before they played a game, after Greg Jennings was in, I believe, his fourth season of being uh, the most reliable target or the most productive target for Aaron Rodgers, you know, according to Jennings, Rogers saying, "Hey, you should come and get this guy next year." What? what? That was that was an amazing. You know, that's an amazing story to me. It just is.
0: Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, that was the moment. I mean, because you know, writing a story, it's one thing. It's one thing to tell. It's one thing for players to tell you what they think and give their opinion. It's another thing for to show it and to have these. Examples and, and Greg Jennings just he, he brought the heat on both, you know. It's and I think that Packers fans love to come after this guy. And he knows it, he's self aware about it. He knows they're gonna <clears throat> freaking spam his Twitter and everything. But he's like, This is my relationship, and he detailed it blow for blow, you know, all the way to being a you know, Brett Favre being a Viking and, and him talking to Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers being ticked off about that, becoming a Viking himself, and seeing that. You know, some of the Packer receivers were looking over their shoulder for Rodgers and him saying, Look, it's okay. I mean, he really brought that to life, I feel like. And as you said, his number one receiver, I mean, the moments they shared, that that Super Bowl thread of the needle. Oh, well that's I mean, that's the that's
2: the, be- that's the best throw of Aaron Rodgers' life. Well, no, Jared absolutely. Cook is the best throw of his life. But this probably in the in a Super Bowl was the most significant throw of his life. One hundred percent. And it's it's just wild to think that it could, it could get so bad
0: so fast when they had so many amazing moments together. And, you know, people can dismiss him all they want. They can dismiss Jermichael Finley all they want. Look, ex-players that were around, you know, I, I, don't call it extra Call it a guy being honest. You know, his, yeah. his livelihood isn't tied to Aaron Rodgers anymore. You know, I mean, he can they can speak candidly, speak refreshing. And, <clears throat> look, I tried to get a hold of James Jones and, you know, didn't you know, decline to talk to run a phone network, however you want to word it, just never heard back. And I know he's upset with what was in the story. Look, these, these are people who put their name to it. They, they brought examples. Ryan Grant was excellent, engaged, engaging, and, and really painted a great picture. So I think that was big. Having, year, you know what,
2: the, the, what really made the story powerful <laughs> is that it would have been very, very easy for people to dismiss the story if you couldn't name if you were just able to say one former Packers receiver said mm-hmm. or one longtime target of Rodgers or one former running back or whatever, but you were able to name them. And I think most people's biggest problem with stories that really go behind the curtain and really go underneath the surface of, of somebody who's huge in the NFL and huge in sports. You know, the fact that you're able to have uh, multiple teammates who are willing to speak on the record, that really, that goes to, I think, quite honestly, I think it goes to your uh, diligence with this story, your relationship with some of these guys, uh, and just the fact that that is an important part of this story, that names were named.
0: I, I totally agree, and, and I appreciate that. Yeah, that that credibility is is big, and you, you hope that people re- respect uh, you know your reporting and, and what you've done in the past. When they do read an anonymous quote, and they know, like, hey, you know, we aren't just throwing this out there. This comes from a place that that we trust, and, and we don't take that trust for, for granted. We don't take that lightly. Um, I think that combination uh, was big here because, as you know, I mean, there are things that. Players, coaches, whoever they, that they want to say, they want out there. They they want to bring a story to life, but they don't want to take the risk. Maybe that a that a Jennings or a Finley, you know, they're thinking about maybe being in the NFL in the future, and they just don't, they don't want that to pop up on Google when you search their name. I mean, it could be something as simple as that, and it's going to shoot from the hip. But it's they they still they still want to let people know, and that was that was the case all over the place here.
2: What what happened when you reached out to? Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy and Ted Thompson.
0: Yep. So, like I said, I, that was a little later in the game. I really wanted to get a full picture of the situation from dozens and dozens of people here, but want, wanted to give them a chance, obviously, to address any, you know, handful of claims by others. And uh, Mike McCarthy left message on the phone, messages on the phone, didn't hear back. And uh, Aaron Rodgers, it was just not around the facility. wasn't able to reach him. And uh, Ted Thompson, you know, I, I didn't have a contact for. Tried a few numbers that I thought might have been his, didn't didn't have any luck. So, you know, obviously the people would pr- want to hear what they have to say. Mike McCarthy did a uh, a really good Q and A with Rob Domofsky, Ran the day before our, our story, so c- kind of explained things in his voice there. Obviously Aaron Rodgers maybe asked about whatever and. He can address it if he'd like. He might even try to drive it forward and think about the offense with Matt Lafleur. Who knows? You know where we'll go with it. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. You you want to hear their voices, and m- maybe that is lacking here. Maybe you know people are reading this. I want to hear what Aaron Rodgers has to say. I, I still really value getting the the bulk, the high volume, several different interviews with several different sources. You know, not multiple different agendas, if, if they even have an agenda. I, I just didn't want one singular agenda to, to dominate the story like you see sometimes. You read a story, it's like, oh my gosh, well, obviously, you know, this coach was the big source behind this story. I, I, I didn't want that.
2: You know, it's it's interesting when you do a story like this that is that is so deep and has so many tentacles into so many things, I'm left thinking – at the end of it, sort of looking forward as the Packers pick up the pieces. You know, a couple of thoughts came to mind. One, you know, Mike McCarthy is going to have a difficult time, I think, coming back from how it ended in Green Bay, coming back from the fact that he didn't get the Jets job, and although there was some interest between him and Cleveland, you know, he didn't end up interviewing in Cleveland. He decided to, uh, you know, basically enter the offseason, get his health right. I think he had a knee surgery at the end of his tenure in Green Bay, and also to just get every all, all his ducks in a row. But the one thing I kept thinking about is I wonder if Mike McCarthy has a chance now to be Brian Billick, a Super Bowl-winning coach, and now – uh, will he ever get a chance after the way it ended in Green Bay? And I have to think that if he does interview for jobs in 2020 and beyond, people are going to be asking him about stuff in this story.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I it is shocking and surprising, and you know, the revelations, whatever you want to call it, may may seem to readers. I don't think a lot of this is a surprise to. People in the know. I mean, think about when he started there in Green Bay, '06 to, to 18. You've got a lot of people on different teams now that know a lot of this stuff. I mean, they, they know that it was a talent-based scheme, a matchup-based scheme. Which works, which works great if you've got that talent, But in today's NFL, I mean, you've, you've got to be able to scheme if you don't have it. Um, and he just didn't really adapt in the words of many others that were around him. I think that people know that. So, you know, as much as uh, the other stuff, um, you know, whether whether or not he got, or how I should say, how many (laughs) massages he got in the office, uh, we'll never know. I mean, you know, I don't think that that's something necessarily that would prevent him from getting a job. But the fact that he did take this more CEO-like approach wasn't in the offensive meetings. That rubbed some guys the wrong way. It didn't rub other guys the wrong way, but – That's something he'll he'll have to address. Why did he take that approach when, as one guy said, uh, you're quote-unquote chilling during the week and calling plays? And then what's up with the scheme? Where are you going to take this? Um, Those definitely are things he'll he'll have to answer for. And Maybe he is Brian. I I don't know. I I like to think he gets another shot because he he built something great in Green Bay when he had the talent. If he has the talent, he could do it again.
2: Where does... Aaron Rodgers go from here. Obviously, out of this story, which I'm sure uh, Rodgers will dispute at some point, he comes across as a major prima donna and almost like a, a, you know, a don, you know, a mafia don. I'm deciding to throw this guy the ball more. And and at least that was the impression that if you didn't do what Aaron said, he probably wasn't going to throw you the ball. That's the impression that was left with some of his receivers, especially young receivers. So there seems to be going into 2019 with the new coach, Matt LaFleur, a lot of pressure on Rodgers, and I don't want to oversimplify this, but basically to take coaching.
0: Mm -hmm. Which he's 35 years old. I mean, he's been in the NFL it's, uh, you know 2005 he's been around a while it's crazy that we're asking that question I mean JerMichael Michael Finley the way he put it is it's, do you expect an addict to change is an addict going to change his ways he, he got the contract now he's got the leverage I mean, Mike McCarthy knew he didn't stand a chance last year after that you know but at least as once the season got rolling I, I think that if he if he wants to win and Aaron Rodgers has said this a lot that you know legacies are made in the postseason he gets all of that that these small sacrifices need to be made. And, and I thought Jennings put it really well. It's not like you have to change a ton. I mean, you're he still has the best arm in football, incredible athleticism for his age, incredible physical talent. Now with the new scheme that will be in more innovative and, and use motion and misdirection direction and more out combinations and an offensive coordinator, Nate Hackett, who's going to push him, who's just got you know, all the energy in the world. Is he going to embrace that and play within that scheme a little bit more? Because, Look, Mike McCarthy gave him that freedom to break from the offense, and and he needed to. Roger Salty needed to. Can he kind of pull that back, look in the mirror, and make small sacrifices? If he does, I think that, yeah, the Packers could contend because he is still unbelievably talented. But he's got to do it because they don't have the talent that they had in
2: 2010 and 2011. Will Aaron Rodgers respect Matt LaFleur?
0: I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. Um, yes, the Jenningses and the Finleys and and some other folks around the organization, some ex-players, they, they're they very, very skeptical. They think that the veterans in the locker room maybe helped keep them accountable early on. You lost those veterans and you kind of started more so doing what you wanted. I, I, I really don't know. I think it's going to take that self-reflection.
2: You know, there's two other sort of Uh, there's two other people who uh, come across damaged collaterally, if that's a correct way to put it. Mm -hmm. One of them is Ted Thompson, the former general manager, um, who basically uh, comes across as a guy who just simply couldn't adjust to building a modern football team. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Ted Thompson is one of the most uh, one of the most interesting people I've met covering the NFL because I can I can tell you that I stood with him in the locker room maybe for a half hour after the Packers' Super Bowl victory over the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, whatever now, I guess it's eight or nine years ago. And Ted Thompson had wave after wave of people come into him and said, what about all these people who didn't trust you to build a team? What about all these people who said this, who said that? There wasn't one moment where Ted Thompson basically lit into anybody or said anything negative about anybody. He's just a, uh, he's almost a, uh, you know, immune to all of it. He just doesn't really get upset seemingly about anything but he comes across really damaged, I think, in this story as a guy who refused to change. And not that he's going to work in the NFL again, but is that a fair portrait of uh, basically Ted Thompson lying in winter?
0: Very, very fair. I think I he think nailed it. Uh, look, I mean, he inherited a team with a lot of bad contracts and a really bad salary cap situation, you know, early 05, an aging Brett Favre, and decided to draft and develop, made some really tough decisions. I mean, you can remember him drafting Aaron Rodgers. That caught criticism. Remember him not acquiring Randy Moss and trading for him. That, that drew a lot of criticism. He's made the tough decisions. He's been very, very methodical. And building through the draft made helped make the Packers – that perennial contender that they became making the playoffs eight years in a row. But, you know, as the salary cap rose, as the team became just close to powerhouse, close to a dynasty, whatever you want to call it, he just never signed those veterans that they needed every March. Just just didn't do it for one, you know, and, and let a lot of veterans go, a lot of leaders go. And, and that came up a ton with ex players that believe he just let some really good players go a couple years too soon, and underestimated the impact that those players had in the locker room. And I think that a T.J. Lang, a Josh Sitton on the offensive line helped helped hold Aaron Rodgers accountable, and they'd call him out, and he respected that. I think it was a good two-way relationship there. And defensively, B.J. Raji's name came up a bunch, for one, as somebody who he was a really strong leader, and if you remember um, the Cincinnati game in 2013, when Rodgers and McCarthy are close to close to blows, it's Raji who steps in, kind of per, plays Mills Lane there. Uh, so there's that factor, and, and I just think he didn't see the forest from the trees. He's such a scout, scout. He loves football, loves going to pro days, loves all of that, which is which is great, which is the reason the Packers are able to uncover a lot of uh, late round gems, undrafted guys. But but you're missing the relationship between Mike McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers. You're not seeing the red flags. You're never stepping in and and forcing that moment of reckoning that was needed. Um, He just never did that. And and then nobody above Ted Thompson stepped in when his health deteriorated toward the end. And and he's falling asleep in meetings and and his speech is slurred. And it's obvious to people around him he shouldn't be the general manager. It was was a problem that just persisted. And and you know this better than me, Peter, but I know a lot of – Owners get criticized for harsh decisions and rash decisions. The the Packers probably needed that singular heavy-handed owner at some point to step in and clean this up, and the de facto owner, Mark Murphy, is finally doing that now.
2: What's really, really interesting, you know, uh, I think uh, Rodgers was really, really ticked off at Mike Florio last fall Uh, because Florio was writing things like, you know, Rogers is, uh, you know, you can feel his passive-aggressive nature when he's dealing with Mike McCarthy. You you can tell he really doesn't have that much respect for him by this, this, and this. And how incredibly ironic. In the 24 hours after your story (laughs) appeared, one thing appeared on social media from Aaron Rodgers. And that is this tweet. I'm proud to say I got to play and be be and be protected by these two warriors, TJ Lang and Josh Sitton. No one had more fun or made these longest days more fun than these two. Blah, blah, blah. And he went on. And that, to me, he didn't write a tweet where he says... This story by Tyler Dunn's a piece of crap. Or this this story by Tyler Dunn. Oh my God, he you know took this out of yeah. context. Took that. What he did was he did the passive aggressive thing. He basically said, "Here's these two great players who we chose not to re-sign, and I chose today." to recognize what a privilege it was to play with these guys. I mean, that was the most I, – I, and maybe Aaron Rodgers, it's the most innocent thing in the world. I think there's a zero zero point zero zero one chance that that was not intended as a response to your story. And I just want to know, what did you think when you saw that?
0: <laughs> you know what? I haven't even thought of it like that, Peter, but that makes a lot of sense. It really does. Uh yeah, you know, passive aggressive is a term that does come up when you talk to people about Aaron Rodgers, and that uh, it wouldn't surprise me. And, and you know, yeah. it's, I, I, it's it's kind of funny, and we're laughing and stuff. But it, it has been a problem. It seems like if something is bothering him or festering, and he's ticked off at McCarthy or ticked off about something, you know, in his professional life, personal life, you know, people close to him say he would just kind of stuff it deep, deep, deep down inside of him, and wouldn't wouldn't attack a problem head-on and avoided confrontation. And I think that personality trait hurt him here with Mike McCarthy. And I do think that Mike McCarthy tried. I mean, it sounds like he reached out and wanted to have him over. He'd talk here and there. Um, He he kind of gave him the advice once, pick up the phone and call your mom. And in so many words, he kind of told his coach to mind your own business. So they just never really addressed the problems that simmered for years.
2: Yeah, that was that was one of the things in your story that was so interesting that it sounded like McCarthy at some point really tried to uh, intervene in a friendly slash positive way in Aaron Rodgers' life, and he wanted to have none of it. Um, we'll end with this, Tyler. Uh, Tyler Dunn, Bleacher Report is is fantastic story, uh, illuminating story on the Green Bay Packers and the relationship between Rodgers and McCarthy and how it ended in such an ugly divorce. Is there any way that Aaron Rodgers does not finish his career as the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers?
0: Hmm. Well, we never thought that uh, Brett Favre would put on another uniform for different reasons, I guess. Uh, I I, I wouldn't rule out anything, not at all. I mean, it's one thing I couldn't really confirm. I, I, I couldn't really report you hear kind of grumblings here and there, but but nothing nothing worth writing. But it, it's something worth talking about. I I think that the Packers aren't necessarily terrified of life after Aaron Rodgers. I think that they view Matt Lafleur as a young, energetic, innovative, perfect coach for the perfect time, coach long term that can run a team more so than just get the best out of Aaron Rodgers. I. I I know they just handed him this contract, so it's silly to even, you know, think about life after Rodgers. But he's thirty-five. I mean, Tom Brady's kind of skewed reality there, and I just think that they're not—they're just not necessarily afraid of it. I don't think they're going to draft a quarterback anytime soon in the first round, but to just keep that in mind—that they're—they're thinking big picture. They don't want the drama, and they made that clear to him.
2: Tyler Dunn, congratulations on the story once again, and. Uh... Uh, I just, uh, I've got a lot of respect for you for having been able to form the kind of relationships that writing a story like this truly does entail. So congratulations and all the best to you.
0: Oh man, I can't tell you how much that means coming from you, Peter. So uh, thank you so much and really appreciate you having me on to uh, talk about it at length here.
2: Support for the Peter King Podcast comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. You want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. So please, I'm begging you, create yours today. It is so easy. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X slash Peter King to get 10% off. Wix.com slash Peter King. You'll be glad you did. And now my conversation with Mike Lombardi. Back on the Peter King podcast. So happy to be joined by Mike Lombardi, who is starting a, a brand new podcast, uh, Mike as you probably know, uh, worked in the NFL for over three decades uh, for several teams. Um, I, I, I've always, I, you know, we're going to get into this a little bit, but I've always thought it was cool. There aren't many people who can say they worked for Bill Walsh, Al Davis, and Bill Belichick, um, but Mike Lombardi has done that. I mean, ha, can anybody else say that, Mike, that, you, that, that, mm-hmm. that they worked for Bill Walsh, Al Davis, and Bill Belichick?
1: I don't think so, but I'll add a little—I'll put another ante into the pot and go into a Super Bowl with all three.
2: Yeah, that's very so, interesting. Yeah. you know,
1: when you look at that, you know, Bill and Al worked together at one time. So, you know, Bill—actually, the reason I ended up working for Al was because Bill—as I was driving Bill Walsh around one day, he said, you know, the most football I ever learned was working for the Raiders. From Al Davis, so that's what prompted me to work for him. So I don't know. I mean, but it do you was-
2: remember? I'll never forget this story that you told me. Uh, this is one of the first times I ever met you. Talk to you. This is a long time ago when we were talking about the incredible drafting prowess of Bill Walsh, right? And we were talking about Charles Haley, and you said that Bill Walsh watched a few snaps of Charles Haley at James Madison. And you or somebody said to him, Geez, don't you want to watch a few games? He goes, Hey, I've watched five or eight snaps of this guy. I've seen what he can do. If he can do that in five or eight snaps, we can teach him. We can coach him to do it for a full game. Yeah.
1: Remember that? Oh, I remember. I can still remember that <laughs> when, when, when he shut off the projector, he said, Men, do we need to really see any more? And then he asked the great Bill McPherson, he said, Mac, where would you draft this guy? and mac made this painful face like he had the worst gas of all time you know uh, you know i maybe in the in the 10th round and coach wall said mac if we want the guy we're going to pick the guy we're not waiting until the 10th round but yeah those those drafts in san francisco you know have an indelible like i can still remember bradford dillman <laughs>
2: yeah we, we got to tell the story of Bradford Dillman, because just remember this, the drafts were longer in those days. Right. Okay, they were Painfully whatever, longer. like 12 rounds or whatever That they was were. a 12-round draft. Yeah, but you were there in San Francisco for three years, right? 84, 85,
1: 86, and 87 drafts. Okay.
2: so you were there for four drafts, and just to preface the story, Bradford Dillman was a character actor correct, in Hollywood and he was a huge 49ers fan and a draftnick and a draft nut he was like he was like mel kiper junior junior right and he would, and so Walsh would let him come to the draft, right? He
1: let him. You know, it's funny. Dar- Darren Rovell had reported that Niners sold two tickets to the draft room for twenty-two thousand yeah. dollars each, or whatever it was. Well, Brad Dillman got it complimentary. He sat in there, came in <laughs> with his little briefcase. He sat down, and, and this was we were at Seven Eleven Nevada Street. We weren't in there new where they are now.
2: You're in Redwood City, California. Redwood City, California, in kind of a dumpy little
1: facility. Not kind of. That was a dumpy little facility. Every
2: NFL team in 1985 had a dumpy facility.
1: And the team meeting room was separated by one of those accordion kind of walls that you go back. So we took the accordion wall back. We opened it up. We set it up as a draft room and yep. put the boards on the wall. The, the guy would come in. We put the boards on the wall. Brad and the front of the room, the back, which was the back of the room, became Coach Walsh's. Like he had a desk there. And then the other opposite end is where Brad Dillman sat. So in 1986, we start off, and he tells me, write these three names on the draft board. And I write Gerald Robinson, defensive end, Auburn. I write John L. Williams, running back, Florida. I write Ronnie Harmon, running back, Iowa. And I sit down. I ran them on a chalkboard keyword here, chalkboard, because there was no grease boards back then. And then the next pick comes up. It's the Minnesota Vikings, there goes Robinson. The next pick comes up, there's the Seattle Seahawks, there goes Williams. The next pick comes up, there goes is Buffalo. there goes Ronnie Harmon. We have nothing to pick, nothing to pick. So Coach Walsh patiently, calmly, decides, let's buy a half hour. And by buying a half hour, we just move two spots down, let Dallas come up and we buy a half-hour. Well, that led to this avalanche of trading down. So by the end of the day, we accumulate. We have a, a second-round pick. We have a one next year. We have three threes, three fours, and some other picks. So we end up picking Larry Roberts, who we are going to pick in the first round anyway, God rest his soul. And then we pick, then at the top of the round, we pick Tom Rathman, which has its own story with Al Davis involved in it. And then we pick Tim McHire, John Taylor, and then at the top of the fourth, we pick Steve Wallace, Kevin Fagan, and Charles Haley. And then in the fifth round, the personnel director at the time, Tony Rosano, said, this is the worst draft of all time. If we don't pick Patrick <laughs> Miller from Florida, we are going to go, this is this is the only thing that can salvage this draft. And so- We go over, and uh, Coach Walsh looks at me, and I said, well, Coach, he tested positive for marijuana at the combine, which in 86 was like the curse of death. That was kind of of a big deal. It was a huge deal, right? Right. So Walsh is kind of pissed off and says, ah- all right. So just to make to shut Tony up, he picks him, and then he walks over to the board and he calls me over. And says, "Michael, who's this kid here?" And he points to Don Griffin from Middle Tennessee. Yeah. I said, "Well, that's the Ohio Valley Player of the Year. He played he played free safety at, at Middle Tennessee. So we'll, we'll draft him in the sixth round when it comes time." So I race to the telephone in the other room to call Don Griffin because it's '86, and and to see if he's alive because there's no internet you know there's right. no way to check he's alive we draft him so now we've picked all these picks we're 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 kind of waiting to the draft ends. so walsh announces after we picked don griffin he says brad in the ninth round you get the pick <laughs> so like it was a guy who's been
2: on colombo and gets the pick the murder she wrote and, and fbi all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah right
1: and so I mean, like it was like it was staged, he flips open his briefcase and he's got a typed written note that he has that's going to announce the pick. So he gives it to Coach Walsh. And I can still remember when Coach Walsh read this. He says he wants to draft Harold Hallman, a defensive end from Auburn, because Hallman gets more penetration than Warren Beatty at a sorority party. <laughs> that was the description of it. <laughs> We draft Harold Hallman.
2: He lasts ten minutes in training
1: camp. He goes. He doesn't even get the. He goes right to Canada. Oh no! Where he makes like all Canadian eight years in a row. Oh really? He was an undersized defensive tackle. So. That
2: is. That's fantastic. Um, with with Mike Lombardi, Mike. Before we go any further, you've got a new podcast. I want to hear about it. And I want to hear, to me, I think you'll be great at podcasting because, running your own podcast, because you can talk for a long time Yeah, and you've been a lot of places. Yeah, But anyway, lot. let's hear about your pod.
1: Well, I'm really excited for it. I mean, it's it's an opportunity to talk about, it. during the off season, we'll do it once a week. During the season, we'll do it twice a week. The, the, the first one will be a kind of a review of what happened, what we saw, kind of a little bit of the stories that not everybody kind of your column, taking the stories a little deeper, how teams won, why teams lost. I think the hardest thing, Al Davis used to do this to me all the time. You get on the team plane after a game. He would say, uh, do, you, do you know why we won? Or he'd say, uh, do you know why the F we lost? And, I, and I'd have to answer him. And I couldn't say, well, we got a bad call today, you know, Mr. Davis. I, I'd have to give him a real answer. And I think that, that those two questions are fundamentally never answered in the NFL. They're always answered in some way that's not accurate. I mean, Andy Reid says we lost to the because we didn't get the ball at this in, in overtime, but they allowed 13 for 19 third downs to be converted. They allowed three third downs on that last drive. They couldn't stop them at any point in the game. They they had ample opportunity to run the clock with three minutes to go in the game. They were down by three. They could have run the clock down to not allow Brady to get the game, but yet the reason they lost is because they didn't get the ball in overtime. It's, so those are the kind of things we really want to talk about on the podcast. And then at the end of the week, we're going to talk about the games and see how they measure up. And football is a game of matchups. you know. And I don't bet games, but I love matchups about games. And so I talk about that and who has the favorable matchup, who's going to win it, who, who could win it, and why they should win.
2: Mike, um, I want to ask you – about your years with Al Davis, you had two tenures, right? Yeah. With Davis.
1: So tell me the years of each. No, just one. I was with them from, well, when you're with Al for, for as long as I was, it was like two lives. <laughs> was, I'm reading a book right now about J.D. Salinger, which is the most fascinating book I've ever read. It's, and I didn't know J.D. Salinger survived the Normandy invasion. Wow. I did not know that he went to a a German uh, prison war camp and was so devastated. That's why, you know, and the aftershock of what he went through in the war maybe led to the reason he became such a recluse. It's an incredible book by Shane Shalano. But anyway, after spending all that time with Al, I can't understand, hey, Al, I'm still married, B, you know, A, how my family stayed intact, B, because those years were never easy. All right, so wh- how, wh- what, was your, wh- what were your years? When to when? 99 to 2007, although all those people that blame me for Jamarcus Russell, I was sent to Elba in 2007. So when you get sent to Elba, Napoleon was sent to Elba after he was overthrown in France twice. Yeah. It's why the town of Lucca in Italy is, is basically dominated by the French, because that was where Napoleon's sister lived. And so he gave her that town. So Al would always say to me, ah, kid, if you behave like that, you're going to Elba. Yeah. So officially, <laughs> I went to Elba in 2007.
2: But what, what did you do in 2007?
1: Uh I sat in my office. I watched tape on the draft. I went for a walk every single day for at least an hour. I answered his, whenever if he called me to ask me about something. Lane Kiffin was the head coach. He came, you'd come into my office and begged me to tell Al not to draft Jamarcus Russell. And I said, Lane, look, I'm going to get fired after the draft. So I don't think I got any say with him. You go talk to John Kingdon down the hall. Yeah. You might want to talk to him, but not, don't talk to me. <laughs>
2: I'll never forget the first time, and I and we'll get back to Al in a second. But I'll never forget the first time I met Lane Kiffin. It was in Raiders training camp. He's like, yeah, you know, he looks like he's 16 years old for crying out loud. He's like 33 years old. And I said, I said to him, "Man, what motivated you to take this job?" And he said, "Hey, you know, three-year contract, whatever the money was," uh, he said some dollar figure. He goes, "What's the worst that can happen?" He fires me, and I thought that was. That's Lane Kiffin. Yeah. Okay, but I thought I would not want to enter a job thinking, "Well, oh, what's the worst thing that can happen? They fire me?" I mean, I'd want to say, "Oh, my god, I get to sit at the right hand of Al Davis. I get to learn this. I get to be a head coach in the NFL." I don't know. I don't think he was thinking that way. I
1: I think he almost got the job like U.S. Grant became the head of the army. He just was the next guy. Yeah, yeah. Like he, uh, you know, he comes in with Steve Sarkeesian. So Sarkeesian's back and forth to Oakland to interview with Al for the head coaching job. And and every time he comes, this is according to Sarkeesian, he claims Al's lies to him. Yeah. Okay. So the last time he comes up, Al tells him, I want to meet who's going to be your offense coordinator. And so Sarkeesian brings Lane with him. Yeah. So then Lane comes up, and he puts Lane on the blackboard, and they go through their, their g- gymnastics. Yeah. And then when Sarkeesian lands back in L.A., he basically has been lied to enough, and he leaks it that he's pulled out of the job. It comes across the ticker. Hmm. Meanwhile, Al sends his trusted aide, John Herrera, down to L.A. to try to figure it out. I mean, like, like seriously, that, that, was the, that was the comedy of all comedy. Do you,
2: do you remember in 2004... 2004- when I wanted to come and cover the draft in Oakland, but at the time I was really on the outs with Al. Uh uh-huh. Al, you know, did not like some of the stuff that I had written. And you said to me, well, I'll see what I can do, uh, you know, whatever. I'll talk to Al. You know, it'd be great to have you in for the draft, all that. So you talked to Al. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know what you said. But then uh, Mike Taylor, the PR guy, said, yeah, you know, you can – You can come in, and and Al will talk to you and everything. And I will never, ever forget, the draft was on a Saturday, okay? Now, Mike, on Friday, now earlier that week, uh, Eli Manning, Robert Gallery, the tackle from Iowa— and one other guy had come in to visit the Raiders. Right. You know, because Al you guys had, I think, the fourth pick in the draft, third or fourth we pick had the in the second. draft. Second pick. Okay, sorry. So Al is trying to figure out who he's gonna draft. And you're gonna have to tell me the real story. But the thing, there's two things I will never, ever forget. I was gonna see Al that Friday, the day before the draft. I was gonna have an hour with Al at one o'clock in the afternoon. So I come in and I go into Al's office and in Al's office are four televisions and they're in a diamond shape. There's one TV uh, up on top and then lower left. There's another one. Lower right. There's another one. And at the bottom, there's another one. It's like in a diamond formation and we started talking and Al started talking about women's basketball. And he started talking about how much he loved Diana Tarasi and the Yukon Huskies. And so I said, Well, geez, my my brother, my sister and my brother-in-law live about 10 minutes from stores and they have season tickets to Yukon women's basketball. So then we talked, I mean, I'm in there to talk about who they're gonna draft. And all he wants to do is talk about how much he loves uh, UConn basketball, he loves Gino Ariama, all this. It was It was an amazing conversation. But you know what else I remember about that day, Mike? I leave your your facility, and I go back to my hotel, and I'm sitting in my hotel, and news comes over that Pat Tillman is dead. That was the day that Pat Tillman died, the day before the draft in 2004. The day we
1: learned that he died.
2: The, yeah, the day you learned that he died. Yeah. I don't know, it might have been a day or two before right. then. But anyway, so it was – I don't know why that just all hit me, but that was an incredible day. But I would just ask you, 2004 draft, Al Davis, why Robert Gallery instead of Eli Manning, Philip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger? Well,
1: I I think two things. Remember that line I said about evaluate your own team? Yeah. Uh, We did a – we had Rich Gannon. Yeah. Al was never about rebuild. He was always about repair. And Al was never about trying to draft a young quarterback. Angela, Angela Coya, the, the, the scout who he brought with him from the Citadel to USC, had been one of his players forever. What was jumping up and down on the table for uh, Ben Roethlisberger. Up and down on the table. Wow. I mean, he wanted him badly. Now, we were going we didn't have a chance to pick Eli. At the
2: end of the day, Mike, you know what? How great a Raider would Ben Roth that, have
1: been? that's exactly where Angie's words. How Ugh. great a Raider would he have been? Man. And so he Al was never going to go into that. And so Gallery was supposedly, quote-unquote, the cleanest player in yes, the draft. I remember. Everybody, it was a can't-miss left Plus top. he was an Eagle Scout, quite literally. Yeah, He was an Eagle Scout. I mean, he was literally that you can't miss with this guy. Right. He was perfect. And again, you know, and we missed. I mean, we took everybody in the room was, yes, he's a great player, plays left tackle. And, and he turned out to be a nice guard. He turned out right? to be. And, and actually, Aaron Cromer, the offensive line coach of the Rams today, put him at right tackle. Because we had Barry Sims at left tackle, who was a really good left tackle. Yeah. And so we draft Gallery. He wasn't going to beat out Sims, and so it, which made the pick even more perplexing. We put, him, we put him at right tackle, and Cromer got him to play the best he ever played in his career. Yeah. It, so, but but for me, walking into the Raider draft room was literally a Twilight Zone episode. I know they brought the Twilight Zone back now. I wish I could talk because it was literally you would leave 2004, and when you would cross that doorway, you entered 1960. <laughs> there were no phones in the room. There were there was a phone for him. There was no TVs in the room. I mean, no TVs. No TVs. You couldn't listen to. Allo Casell was the only person who was on the phone to the league office. So you had to listen to Lo Cassell tell you who the pick was. Well that was my first year was ninety nine, right? By two thousand I got the internet put into the room. So I didn't have to listen to Loki because he would say, they just drafted. They just drafted. And he would mispronounce the guy's name. And I would say, who? And he would just screw up the name. <laughs> and then you would have to sit there and deal with it. Why did Al not want technology in his draft room? Because he's done a 1,000. Because that old line, we've always done it without technology. We're going to keep doing it without. Because wow. the sign I held in my office above my desk that when he would sit there after he worked out that said, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less by Eric of the United States Army. I tried to get him to read that subliminally through that. He never could. So that's why we never changed.
2: Yeah. Um, w- let me just get back to that draft year. So he never really wanted Roethlisberger and he certainly never really. Eli was not his type because he wasn't a big, strong arm guy. No, right? there,
1: there was really only one player that that really was in the discussion. It was Ben Roethlisberger. He yeah. was big. He dominated his conference. He had a yeah. powerful arm, you know. And then that first game of the year, we go back and play. Now North Turner just comes in to be the coach, so we go back and play pittsburgh in the opening game and tommy maddox is the starting quarterback for the steelers that year yeah and we come back and make a rally in that game and come back and maddox makes a throw and we lose opening day that week but then two weeks later big ben comes in and starts and leads them to the playoffs
2: yeah uh imagine how history would have been changed if ben roethlisberger was the pick in that draft uh, you know over robert gallery
1: yeah, it, it's just there's so many of that conversations. Yeah, I mean you could do that, and, and and really the root of that conversation comes back to misevaluating your own team. It isn't that you misevaluated Roethlisberger because we didn't. Yeah. We really liked Rob. We thought Rich. We we thought Rich Gannon, a la the Giants, think Eli Manning can keep going. Yeah, and when you start having that debate, when you're in that and when you're in that zone of, I'm not sure. You're wrong. You probably should go ahead.
2: When you think of Al Davis now. Uh, the late Al Davis. What do you think of, and is there a classic Al story that has stuck in your brain all these years about what it was like to work for him?
1: You know, I, there's two Al Davises for me in my life. The one, the later years of his life were very part. Once he was suffering with whatever ailments he was suffering with, that pain he inflicted on other people. It became very difficult to work for him. The early Al Davis, I learned a lot of football from. That's the Al Davis I remember. Uh, the Al Davis that was able to, could have a conversation with, was more giving. I think the, that what I remember most about Al was his unbelievable passion and his drive to, to really study his craft. I mean, it's remarkable how he would—the st- the discipline that he took to study his craft and the ideas that he had that he could never implement. He had some brilliant ideas, and, and I think the, the, the hardest part for him was change. And I think that that would be the one thing that I would remember is don't be afraid to change. Hmm.
2: Let me ask you about Bill Belichick and your time working with him— and what really sticks out to you about why he basically has
1: lapped the field? Well, I think it's it's easy because he gets culture more than anybody. Uh, he understands how to build a culture. He understands how to maintain a culture. He understands how to build a team, not just pick players. And his work ethic is truly remarkable. His ability to concentrate is truly remarkable. You know, what I tell people all the time is when he comes in when he works on something, he works on that. That's what he works on. And there's no check the internet, check the scores. His focus is remarkably concentrated on the subject at hand. And his ability to to get people to follow him and to get people to do what he needs them to do is remarkable. And he communicates for somebody that people in the media wouldn't think he communicates very well. He's an excellent communicator.
2: I sat on the... Uh NFL's 100th year all-time team committee. Uh, There was about 30 people on the committee, and I was one of them, and Bill was on the committee too. And Bill was on the committee, on the meetings. He was on the... A bunch of us were in New York, and there were people. uh, Don Shula was on the phone. Belichick was on the phone. But what was so interesting is that I would be, I would venture to guess that in a, and I, I don't know how long the meeting was, maybe five or six hours one day, he spoke more than anybody else. Yeah. He was so involved and so interested, particularly when it came to the Bulldog Turners of the world. He was so interested in the old players from the 20s and 30s and 40s getting the do- that has escaped most ancient players over the years. I really thought, I said, I I thought to myself, listening to this, I really wish that people could hear this. Yeah. Because... He has a love of football. You know he has a love of football, obviously, but he has such a love of football, and it really came across in that.
1: And I think the parallels between Walsh and Belichick are similar in that area. I mean, Walsh, when you would get on a team bus with Bill Walsh, if you had enough courage to get on team bus one, and he would be in seat one there to the right, and he was doodling, he was doodling Wings T plays or Clark Shaughnessy's offense plays. He had this sense of history about him that was remarkable. And that's why today if he were alive and he would look at this game today and he would see so much of the single wing in some of these teams with their running. I mean, Baltimore really would do themselves, if you're Greg Roman and you're running the offense at Baltimore, you'd do yourself a favor to go back and study a lot of the single wing stuff that they ran back in the 30s and 40s because it's good stuff. Just because it happened then it doesn't mean you know it's good stuff. And I think the sense of history. Walsh used to say all the time the way he created culture was Marines fight for Marines. And if you don't honor the past Marines, how do you get the present Marines to fight for you? Right. And that's Belichick's modus. When you go, you've been in the dining hall. There's a reason why the dining hall is lined with former Patriot greats. Because when you're sitting there eating, he wants you to see Troy Brown. He wants you to see Andre Tippett. He wants you to see John Hanna. He wants you to remember the wall. You know, at the Air Force Academy, when you walk to school every day, there's the giant wall of great Air Force cadets. You go by there, and some days at class, they'll ask you who's on the wall. They want you to know who's on the wall. And part of the creating culture is about understanding your history. And that's what Walsh and Belichick were so good at doing.
2: We'll finish with this, uh, with Mike Lombardi. Mike, as we now sit here two weeks before the draft— over the years, you've been in a lot of draft rooms. You've prepared for a lot of drafts. What is happening right now, two weeks before the draft, in draft rooms that we don't know?
1: Uh, the cleanup. The the cleanup of the. There's two things going on. There's the top and the bottom there's the cleanup of all the medical that has to get handled to get the doctors to commit to where you really are. Where can I take this player? Where can I can't? Josh Sweat, the defensive end from Mississippi state has that heart murmur, whatever he has. Montez Sweat. Montez Sweat. I'm sorry. Has that heart murmur. You've got to be able to handle that. And then you've got to be able to do the last workouts. Where are you going to work out? Who you have to work out? What coaches you need to see? Because, and then the other factor is you got a bunch of guys coming in on visits and what you want to do. So those three things, you're really working on the top of your draft. Because, look, let's face it, anybody who's picking past 10 has no idea who's going to be there. So you're still making sure you can collect the right data. And that's what you're really working on. And then you're working on your free agent board. Like who's, who could we get that's not going to get drafted, and we want to make sure we have them in the right order.
2: Mike Lombardi, it's really been fun. I wish you well with the GM Shuffle, your new podcast uh, at Cadence Thirteen going to be a winner. And uh, I also am negligent in saying, uh, and I just brought this with me on a trip to the West Coast recently, your book, Gridiron Genius, really has a lot of good, informative stuff in there. And the one reason that I think people would really enjoy it is I think a lot of people who have been in your job, let's say former front office guys in the NFL, GM types, and then gone on to either do the media or something else. If they ever write a book or if they ever do this, I remember telling Ross Tucker when he left uh, the NFL, played with six or seven teams, had a short, you know, had a cup of coffee a couple of places, but I remember saying, listen, You were behind the curtain. You know things. You've been with great people in football. When you write about it, if you do end up doing that, take us there. And that is the thing about Gridiron Genius that I think you did that probably you didn't get enough credit for. Because in that book, you take people to meet Bill Walsh and and all the people you've worked with in your life. So... Uh, I've really um, I'm
1: two-thirds of the way through it now and I've really learned a lot thank you Peter I appreciate it and and let me say this you you were instrumental in starting my writing career and I appreciate that I can still remember uh, writing for the SI and sending you something and it had more red lines in it than a, than than Paul Castellano did over here at Sparks so <laughs> I appreciate all your help.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't know about that analogy, Mike, but hey, you know, we've had some good times together. But anyway, Mike Lombardi, appreciate you being on the podcast and good luck with GM Shuffle here at Cadence 13. Thanks to my guests, Tyler Dunn and Mike Lombardi. If you enjoy these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast series, such as my conversations with Tony Romo, Chris Collinsworth, and Kirk Cousins. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the Peter King Podcast on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Wix. Please support Wix the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.
1: Want to make mom's day?